Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you, yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in these last times will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow me in natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. A, um, a little while ago, the, uh, the Ecclesiological Society stated that on average, each week in the UK, one church shuts down. But it turns out that's quite a conservative estimate. Um, Christian research says it's closer to five churches per week that shut down in the UK. 
And yet I wonder whether actually it's much more than that, because if you look at the numbers, they are just talking, they seem to just be talking about buildings, not gospel families, not people, not churches, perhaps you don't have buildings. Over in the States, as is often the case, they are much better with their numbers, much hotter at least. And over there, apparently, it's nearer 60 to 70 per week shutting down. But they're only about six times larger than us in terms of population size. So, proportionally, there are more churches shutting down in the States. And I guess it makes us ask the question, why do churches close? It's a pertinent question. It's a pertinent question because there are churches near here who may well be on the edge of closure. There are churches near here who have had their ministry teams stretched so that there are ministers who oversee a number of different churches now because numbers are decreasing and so they're they're stretched over more people or at least more buildings. There are churches near here who have been declining for a while who used to be thriving, bustling and maybe just a few years' time, who knows where they'll be. They've moved from a thriving witness to almost closing the doors. Now, it's not my plan today to um, try and diagnose all those problems as to quite what's going on. There'll be different answers for different situations and different contexts. But just notice, as we begin this little five-week series in Jude, if you just notice why Jude was written, I think you'll see why it's relevant for us. Actually, there's a guy called Harrison Mungai who came in April to our morning service, um, who opened up some of this as well. Um, But do you remember, just verses 3 and 4, you get a glimpse as to something of why Jude was written. Verse 3, dear friends, he says, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why? Well, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. There's a key word in there in verse 3 that I wonder whether it gives us just a, a hint as to often why churches shut down. It's that word, contend. Is it simply that truths haven't been contended for in decades gone by and ground has been lost. Maybe just a bit by bit making Jesus a little more palatable for the culture in which we live. A a message that will keep us with a few friends perhaps. A message that's a bit less controversial, a bit more PC, a bit more attractive to those around us we think. I came across this quote last week, actually, from a a theologian named John Prame. He said this, he said, "Um, To a distressing extent, new theological movements follow fashionable secular trends. When a position becomes popular in secular politics and culture, it seems quite certain that some theologians will discover that position in the Bible and church tradition. That is, there is something believed in our culture and then suddenly you think, oh, yeah, God agrees with that. It's fine, he's okay with that. Look, let me show you in the scriptures um, where that is. And so we change what we believe to fit the world around us, the message of the world around us. 
Maybe it's just our politeness and our Britishness and our fear of conflict, so we don't speak up, we don't contend, whether at a national level, a church level, or even just individually as we talk to friends. A few of you know I went to the States a couple of years ago, and at the church I was at there, basically they had heard that much of the UK Christian scene was beyond the pale. We were basically dead. Churches were basically dead. Rest in peace, UK Christians. That's not quite the case. But maybe there's more than a grain of truth in some of that for some types of churches, for some denominations. The core gospel has perhaps essentially been lost for some, or at least watered down. Maybe it's true to say that contending for the truth of the gospel didn't happen so much in the particularly early and mid-20th century. Liberal theology took its toll on churches as the Bible was ripped apart, as it was shown that we couldn't trust it anymore. And you see, Jude is writing to a church family under fire. Possibly it's a church in Ephesus. Um, And he urges them, verse 3, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. To stand firm. And as we go through, we'll see there are various categories and various um, issues going on within the church. But essentially, you can split them off in terms of truth and doctrine and what is believed, which is then linked in with how people live, lifestyle. What we believe affects how we live. What we're going to do today is we're going to dig down into just verses 1 and 2. And I think in many ways, Jude gives us the sort of foundations for the letter. It's a short letter, but we'll find it worthwhile to dig into verses 1 to 2. And because I think it's upon these truths, actually, that he will build in the weeks to come. Um, And if you like, there are two things, two broad things to hang these verses off. Uh, They are, firstly, remember who you are. And so, remember what you have. I'll say that again. Remember who you are, that is your identity. And because of your identity and who you are in Christ, so here is what we have. Firstly, they remember who you are. And the thing that never fails to floor me, as you read these first two verses in Jude, is this kind of humble assurance that, that seeks out of Jude. There's a humility there, but that is marked, uh, countered, but marked perhaps by an assurance of who God is and who he is in Christ. Um, Which makes it a refreshing book for a a time like ours, because humility is looked down upon by many. You may know that from the the workplace or our culture or society. We're we're worth it, we're important, we need better self-esteem, we're told. And so humility isn't always a thing that we encounter. We might hide it with the proverbial humble brag. I can't believe I have to get up so early again for another TV appearance or oh, my hand aches from so much book signing. But actually humility is not a thing we see that much. Or at least when we do see it we are struck by it because it can be unusual. So there's humility in that question. There's an assurance as well that we'll see. And I think assurance also can be looked down upon in spiritual matters. It's striking. I was told recently of a fascinating encounter that Billy Graham had um, as he spoke at a mission in Sydney, Australia one time. They had him on the radio and they asked him, Dr Graham, if you died tonight, how sure are you 
that you would go to heaven? Simple question. And Billy Graham said, I'm certain that if I died tonight, I would go and be with the Lord Jesus. And the switchboards were absolutely jammed with people ringing in to complain. People who said, I couldn't believe my ears, how arrogant of anyone to say they were certain of going to heaven. Isn't that extraordinary? Why did they react like that? Well, because they thought going to heaven when you died was to do with what you had done whether you had done enough, rather than your identity, rather than who you were. And so when Billy Graham said, I'm certain I'm going to heaven, they thought he was saying, I'm good enough, I've earned my place. So even assurance when it comes to spiritual matters can be something that people shy away from or are unsure about. But actually, as Jude writes, I am struck by the humility and the assurance coupled. Um, So you see, he's humble. Where do you see that? You see it firstly, verse 1, because he describes himself as being a servant of Jesus Christ, which is astounding. Actually, it's not quite right. The, the word, as you might know, is almost slave. Isn't that striking? Jude has a new master now. He, he does not call the shots anymore. Somebody else calls the shots. Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ. And to be a servant in the ancient world... Um, to be a slave was not a good thing. It wasn't as bad as sometimes we can think. But I'm told a slave's marriage was largely unrecognised, a slave's death was largely um, uninvestigated, and yet for Jude, he begins his letter with, he's a servant, it's a badge of honour. Not because of some status in the position itself, but rather I take it because of whom he serves. He knows who calls the shots. He knows who his boss is. He knows that his life is not his own anymore. How about at the start of 2018, having that as your foundation? How about remembering that we are servants of Christ, first and foremost? It's very countercultural. In a world that prizes freedom and doing what we want to do and when we want to do it, How about remembering that with Jude we are servants of Jesus Christ? Do you think of yourself in that way? Very often? We're more comfortable with Jesus being our brother. And that's right. We're right to be thrilled by that truth because of his love for us, because of his death in our place. So we, by faith in him, are are joined to him by faith. We own all that he won. He is our brother. But there's a sense too that we are servants of Christ. We are merely servants. We think our time belongs to us. It doesn't. We think our stuff, our things belong to us. They don't. We think our money belongs to us. It doesn't. He is the boss. We are servants of him. Would you go where he asked you to go? Would you do what he asked you to do? Would you give up whatever he asked you to give up? And I kind of, yes in theory. Not so sure in practice. Jesus' servant. And yet the thing that we're missing perhaps, the problem with me asking those questions of us and of myself is that Jesus the slave master 
is an altogether different type of slave master, isn't he? He is good. He is kind. He loves us. We can trust him. Always. He's the kind of slave master who gives up his life for his slaves. So you see Jude's humility. You see it because he describes himself as a servant. You see it also in that he says he is, do you see that, verse 1, and a brother of James. And at that point you kind of think, well, who is this James that he talks of? Because presumably he's someone well known to these early Christians, or why would you mention it? Why would you just associate yourself with James unless James was somebody that everyone understood? And most commentators agree here that the James here is most likely James the brother of Jesus. Which of course makes Jude also the brother of Jesus. That's how families work. So Jude most likely was one of Jesus' earthly family, people think. The children of Mary and Joseph. You can get it actually if you go to Matthew 13 verse 55. People... Um, begin to doubt Jesus and his credentials and whether he's legit and they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Presumably Judas became a little less popular as a first name and so maybe Jude changes um, slightly. It's striking, isn't it? You can imagine him being kind of wheeled out at conferences in our day. Sofa interview, light shining down, drum roll, out comes Jude. Yeah, we, we always knew he was going to be a bit special. I mean, he was great with a chisel or whatever it is, but, but not at all. He's not the name dropper. Actually, he almost disguises his identity rather than using it to, for his benefit or to lord it over people or to kind of big himself up in his status. He's perhaps strikingly like his older brother, Jesus. And rather than abusing his credentials, he considers himself a slave for the sake of others. And actually, you might want to know, if you look at the Gospels, um, his physical family, at least at the start, didn't seem to follow him. They didn't think he was a bit special. They weren't um, too excited by him. In fact, they tried to come and uh, hide him away because they thought he was a bit of a fruitcake and they, tried, they were embarrassed by him at one meeting. I take it later then, the family realised who he was and James and Jude fall into that category. So you see his humility, it's extraordinary. He, he is almost disguising his own identity. He, he knows who his older brother Jesus is and sees himself as a servant. Again, in a world of self-aggrandizement, here is a man who is happy to be humble. Here is a man who is happy to sit in the shadows, for whom his life is not about him. There's this humility. There's also a striking assurance as well. Have a look at how the verse continues. To, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I'd love you to just imagine, um, imagine you receive this letter as a church, 
um, and it's, it's read out. And you've had these newcomers who have arrived in church over the last kind of few months or years, and they come with a slightly different teaching. Crowds have flocked to them, and it all sounds quite attractive. There's, there's a novelty. We always like new ideas, and these guys are saying stuff that they quite like. It's nice to listen to, and yet something doesn't feel quite right. Your sort of radar is twitching a bit, but maybe they're okay. Maybe, maybe what they are teaching is true. Maybe these guys are the real deal, and the stuff you had before, maybe that was a little bit um, unhelpful or not quite all the way there. And you suddenly you begin to feel a bit wobbly, a bit confused, a little bit like a kind of rowing boat. And suddenly these waves are threatening to swamp you and engulf you, and you're not quite sure what's what anymore or who to trust or or anything, and your, your faith foundations are beginning to crumble. And so Jude says to, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, he says, friends, you can be assured, you can have a humble confidence because of what God is like, he, he calls you and he loves you and he will keep you. And that is the foundation upon which he will build then in weeks to come. And that language actually, that calling, loving, keeping language, it all sounds slightly kind of Old Testament, doesn't it? It sounds pre-Jesus. Israel were the called, loved and kept people. And I think that's deliberate. Jude is assuring them, encouraging them, saying, you are the people of God. You are in line with God's people, chosen, loved and kept. And notice in that verse um, 1 as well, under verse 1, three different places that he looks, three different temporal places um, that he looks to for their assurance. So he looks right back and he says, to those who have been called by God, every single Christian, Jude says, has been called by God to be in a relationship with him. Because if you are a Christian here, then God has called you, and so you can have an assurance. That might raise questions for some people. I'd love you to park those questions at this point and come and chat to me afterwards. But, but be assured, rather, that this calling is not kind of God picking up a phone and saying, Hey, do you want to come be a part of my family? Take it or leave it. No, no, the calling is not a choice that he gives. Rather, in the Bible, it's an inevitability. It's because you have been called, so you will come. There's a certainty about it. You can be assured because he's called you. So he looks back at their calling, then he looks to the now, the present tense of being loved in God the Father. Every single Christian, he says, has been loved by God. And maybe where they are feeling bruised and confused, where they are wobbly, she says, you have the promise of God's love for you, present tense. Not because you've earned it, not because of what you like, not because of being good enough this week, or good enough today, or notching up enough points, or your track record, but being loved because of who you are in Christ. Loved in God the Father and kept for him. Which means we're loved even when we don't feel like it. Which means we're loved even when we feel like we've let him down. 
He loves us because of who he is. I know too easily I can trust my feelings. But here is a truth that we can trust. Even when we don't feel it. Here is a truth to preach to ourselves. Even when we doubt it. We are loved in God the Father. So, look back, they're called, look to now they're loved, look ahead, because they are being kept for Jesus Christ, kept for the future. She doesn't tell them, Christians, friends, you're going to be happy, or it's going to be easy, or it's all going to go as you want it to go. But he says, you are being kept for Christ's return. Kept for this glorious future that he speaks of. And again, imagine you are in their place and you read this and suddenly there's the comfort of truth which is a balm to your troubled and weary and confused soul. What a foundation for the letter for these people to hear. Remember where to look. Slow down. Look back and remember you've been called by him. Look now and trust that he loves you. Look ahead and see that he will keep you. A humble assurance from Jude. Because of who you are, because of your identity, then you have foundation. But as well as remembering who you are, more briefly, just verse 2, look at what they have. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Again, as is often the case, when you read these New Testament letters, the little words at the start are often, are always, not just fillers, but often set the agenda for the rest of the letter for us. They're not just words plucked from nowhere, but they're the contents page, if you like, of what's to come. So mercy is finding pardon from God, it's forgiveness, it's kindness, it's compassion, it's him not treating us as we deserve. Peace is what we experience with God and then with others, that vertical relationship with him that is restored impacts how we treat other people and and love as we've already seen. Um, We are loved by him so we can love others. And those are truths, as we say, for all the time. But they might particularly be truths for this time, as Jude is writing. So have a look down with me and you see um, each of those coming up as a theme to sort of thread through the rest of the letter. And they bob to the surface in different places. So for example, mercy, have a look down at verse 22, which is at the top of page 1232 if you have a... A Burgundy Bible. Be, be merciful to those who doubt, saving others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We'll look at that in weeks to come. But, but for now, just notice that showing mercy is not something naturally that we actually do. Often, we, we want people to pay for what they've done wrong or the mistakes they've made and yet Jude says remember you receive mercy verse 2 now go and show mercy among you for the people who have been duped for those who have got it wrong for those who are doubting 
Don't treat them perhaps as they deserve, but help them to see mercy. I find that striking, because easily I can kind of shrug my shoulders and move on and say, well, I've only got so many hours in the week, I've only got so much kind of relational capacity, I just kind of leave them to it. But Jude says, no, no, you've been shown mercy, now show mercy to other people. Then there's peace, um, verse uh, again, so verse 2, and you get it again in verse 16. Actually, no, it is verse 16, but by implication. So you see there are divisions going on within the church. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So I think Jude is saying, look, these people among you, this division that's being sown among you, now go be a peacemaker. You have peace from God, now sow peace with other people. And then you get the love as well, I think in verse 12. So, um, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. A love feast sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Um, I think probably it's just like a big church lunch that we have here. Um, but what they're doing is they're kind of getting a tray for themselves, piling it all on, coming up to the front back here where we stand, kind of just piling it all on, and then leaving nothing for everybody else. Jude's point is that they're in the church, they're mucking stuff up. Look, you see they are selfish, they feed only themselves, these are possibly even teachers in the church. But Jude is saying you haven't got to do this on your own because you have love from him in abundance that you can even deal with the division and the squabbles going on inside. Look, true love from the Lord that these love feasts might be that kind of thing again rather than selfishness. Rather than shepherds feeding only themselves. Mercy, peace and love are what you have. Now mercy, peace and love are what you need. And so we look back at 2017 and we consider the highs and the lows and the frustrations and the joys and we we look ahead at 2018 and whatever's coming, whatever's coming around the corner, whatever the next 12 months bring for you, wherever we might feel scary or unsure, Well, remember who we are and remember what we have because of who we are. We have mercy, peace and love from him. Who are we? We are humble servants of Christ. Recognising that he is the boss. Recognising that he calls the shots. That all we have is is of him. Recognising that we are chosen and loved and kept and so there's an assurance from him. And what do we have? We have mercy. We have peace. And we have love. And in Christ, that is all we shall need for these coming 12 months. Let me pray for us. Father, give us opportunity, please, as we respond now and as we consider this week who we are in you. 
Lord, in a world of pride, would you humble us? Might we see ourselves as servants? Might we have the assurance from you of being called and loved and kept? Might we remember, please, all we have because of who we are. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for peace. Thank you for love. Thank you for those things that you show to us. Change us through them that we might treat others with mercy and peace and love. In your Son's name we pray, and for his glory. Amen. Amen.